Hello folks, welcome to Infinity Foundation's Kurukshetra podcast. I am your host Karishma Hemant Singhani. In today's podcast, you will hear Mr. Rajiv Malhotra's lecture at British Parliament on India's soft power reparations. So let's listen in. Namaskar and uh, my pleasure to welcome you all to uh, the House of Commons uh, once again. Uh, I note that my my I, I, I hesitate to call him friend, but colleague uh, uh, Stephen oh, Pound. Oh, we are all friends here. <laughs> <laughs> it's here. So, Every indeed. Be more Hindu, my friend. <laughs> even more Hindu. Yes, on, on occasions uh, uh, such as this, I, I, I always repeat my mantra that I'm a cringe Christian with Jewish roots, but honorary Hindu. I have just returned from India uh, for my sixth visit in the last two years, uh, where I had the pleasure of going on a direct flight from Heathrow to Ahmedabad, uh, which of course was one of those things that Prime Minister Narendra Modi promised when he was here on his last visit. Whilst I was there in India, uh, I had the opportunity of meeting both the Foreign Secretary, the Indian Foreign Secretary, that is not the UK Foreign Secretary, uh, but the the Foreign Secretary and the Deputy National Security Advisor. And he, both of whom, made a very important point to me, uh, and I think one that I'm going to relate to the Foreign Secretary when I get a chance to sit down with him. And that is, as we are concentrating in the United Kingdom on Brexit, there is a feeling across the world, and particularly in our friends in India, that we're taking our eyes off the ball of our world role in terms of security and defence cooperation. That's particularly true because China, right now, is very involved. Um, And I, I take the view that China is encircling India uh, I was in Sri Lanka six years, uh, five years ago now, when we saw we were the first people to land on the runway of the new international airport, built by the Chinese and policed by the Chinese uh, and controlled by the Chinese. We also went to the international uh, deep seaport, which once again built by the Chinese and policed by the Chinese. So that's the south of India. We have the proposed economic corridor going through the north from China through the illegally occupied part of India in Kashmir by Pakistan through to Europe. Um, that is, that's, the, that's the second element. And then we've seen what's happening in the Maldives where, where China is trying to create a new island which once again it will control. So it will be the encirclement of, of India. At the same time, if you followed the news, there have been a series of terrorist outrages uh, that have taken place in Jammu and Kashmir, where more than 25 civilians have been murdered by terrorists, and at least seven service personnel have lost their lives as well. And we should, I think this meeting, we should express our sympathy to all the relatives and all the victims of this unnecessary terrorism. Equally, there, are, there have been already identified no less than 162 terrorist training camps 
uh, on the Pakistan side of the line of control. Training terrorists through state-sponsored terrorism from Pakistan to actually infiltrate sovereign India and cause as much damage as is possible. Um, so I think we can say that there are serious security problems that India faces. This morning at Business Questions, I asked for a statement for, from the Foreign Secretary or, or the Minister of State on what we can do in this country to stand shoulder to shoulder with our friends from India against this terrorism. Um, and I think uh, that's something we will be featuring over the next uh, few weeks because it is vital that we reach out our hand of friendship to all our friends in India and demonstrate that we are steadfast against terrorism. It is relevant, of course, for our chief speaker today, which I know he has um, very appropriate views on uh, uh, cooperation between the United Kingdom and India going forward, and I'm looking forward to, to hearing what he has to say. This place thrives on free speech and people that want to come along and have their say about democratic, uh, responsible types of interaction. Sometimes that can be controversial, and it's quite right. But what we should be doing is hearing those views and having the opportunity to debate them. <laughs> and I welcome you. And it's uh, notable, of course, that, as I say, my colleague Stephen Pound, who uh, uh, I no doubt will say a few words later, uh, has been, I uh, say, a good friend of India as well, uh, is here to demonstrate the cross-party nature of what we do in this country. Uh, we, so even if we do have our political differences on the odd occasion, it is important that we stand shoulder to shoulder with, with India uh, in seeking a better and more fruitful partnership going forward, actually reuniting as part of the Commonwealth as we leave the European Union behind us in terms of a political tie-up. So can I welcome you all here? Uh, I, I'm delighted to see that we're standing room only uh, once again <laughs> uh, for this event. And I'm looking forward to the interaction that we're going to have. Jayashi Krishna. This is a momentous occasion because we are hosting uh, Sri Radhivji here. Please give him a big, big, big applause. Welcome, Radhivji. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. I'm indeed honored to be here, and thanks to Honorable Bart Blackman for inviting and hosting us. I'm delighted that Right Honorable Teresa Villiers is here. It's a, it's a real pleasure. And Honorable Stephen Pound has taken the time. I'm also delighted that a solid group of uh, our community is established here under Sri Satish Sharma and Triptaji and Madhuji. I would like to discuss the post-Brexit climate from a different point of view. We have a lot going on in the areas of hard power, military, trade, etc., between different countries. And India is very active and interested in engaging UK. I want to talk about soft power areas. When, when you look at 
brand Modi. It's a, it's a global brand. And Britain must engage brand Modi. It's important to ask who voted Modi into power. That's the question. It's a groundswell. It's not some fringe group. It's not something that's going to go away. This is the new India voice that feels it has been suppressed for a few decades. And this voice has come back in a big way. So this is the voice that Britain needs to understand. And I will give a little bit about what that voice is about. Because as I will explain, Britain has its alignments in the public square and in academics and so on, often with the very same intellectual people from India that have now been booted out. So it's very interesting that the Indian voters have removed a whole narrative and replaced it with a new narrative. But many of the people from the old narrative still enjoy prominence overseas. So a good thing for a, a joke in India, in Delhi, is that if you get booted out of India, you can always go to London and they'll still think highly of you because you can market yourself that way. So this, this disconnect is something important to fix because the policies of India should direct itself to the people's voice in India and not the, the voices that have been discontinued and dismantled. So we need to understand what has been dismantled in India, and it has some parallels with Brexit. Because in both instances, what has been thrown out is a sort of ultra-liberal left voice. I'm not against liberalism. I think there are some amazing good things about it, but it was excessive. It was arrogant. It was hypocritical. In some cases, outright corrupt. So this narrative, which is sort of a global narrative, which is being dismantled, not only in UK and India, but many other countries you can see around the world, Japan, Australia, etc. You have to understand what is this narrative and what are the other grand narratives of various peoples that want to come back. So like Brexit is a voice in Britain that wants to have its old grand narrative revived and heard because the new narrative was not being fair to it, maybe too much, uh, too much oppression and too much dismantling of the pride of heritage. In the same way, that exact sort of thing is what brought Modi into power. Because a, after India's independence, what India got was political autonomy. What India is now getting in the last 15 years is financial and economic autonomy. But we still do not have a decolonization of the intellectual sphere. We still have books written in the past, which are very denigrating to the culture and heritage and history of the Indian people. And this is an Indian problem. You cannot blame it on someone else. We've been free from colonialism for 70 years. And haven't, if we haven't done a darn thing, it's about time. So the people of India decided that they got to, they're disgusted with the state of affairs in terms of what's being taught in our schools in India, and, and the asymmetric imposition of secularism, asymmetric. It might be a surprise to some people that Hindu temples in India 
are controlled and operated and administered by the government. Though we are supposedly a secular country, and this administration of religious worship is not happening for any other religion but Hinduism. So that's, that's, not, a, that's not secularism, that's sort of like pandering to the minorities. Now, I believe that the minorities need help and the minorities need to be championed and everybody's narrative is very good and we should respect it. But respecting one should not be at the cost of disrespecting the other. It should not be that we've got to knock down the 80% minority in order to impress the vote bank of the 20%, I mean the 80% majority, in order to uh, get the vote bank and the hearts of the 20% minority. And it's these games which are dishonest, which led to the dismantling of this old stuff and the rise of Modi, which I think is here to stay. In the attempt to uh, bring about harmony and peace, there emerged an extreme left narrative which said all grand narratives are bad. Grand narratives are uh, tribal. And so we got to get rid of them and replace it with some kind of a, 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 a human being who has no sense of identity. Uh, this, was, uh, this led to the fall of uh, the Maoism. Uh, Maoism in China has been replaced with a Chinese grand narrative. I mean, they have a Communist Party, but the Communist Party has brought back Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, and they are saying the old classical narrative of who we are is very compatible and consistent with modernity, modernity the Chinese way rather than the Western way, and future. So this, and this is what the Confucian Institutes are teaching. This is exactly why the Soviet Union fell apart. And when the Soviet Union fell apart, we found that there was a huge resurgence of religion because it had been suppressed. So after many generations, and despite all the education of uh, the G German, uh, I mean the, the Russian youth into uh, you know, science and uh, you know, s s scientific reason, logic and all that, thinking that these, these things will get rid of the problem and primitiveness of faith. The point is it didn't happen. When the USSR was dismantled, one of the things that came back with a bang was religiosity. People want to understand their past and they want to understand their history, they want to understand their culture in a positive way. So you see it, this sort of uh, overdone secularism, atheism, uh, dismantling the narratives in a very nasty, negative, pejorative way, not in a reasonable way, has backfired. And so my sense is that the, this dismantling of the ultra-left in India and a similar trend in UK and other places, presents an opportunity for a new kind of a cooperation. So if stage one epoch was multiple grand narratives at war with each other, and this was replaced by a kind of let's fight all the narratives, okay, from the extreme left point of view, it's the opium of the masses, let's get rid of all of that, and that was sort of the next stage. Now we have to create a third stage. And I propose we have to create a stage where people have their grand narratives, but these grand narratives, rather than being at war with each other, have mutual respect. So we need to create, the different nations of the world need to create their own positive narratives, but in a manner that they're also open and respectful to other people's narratives. So several, about two decades ago, I started developing this idea of mutual respect rather than tolerance. 
because in the year 2000, there was a world event at the United Nations of all the religions uh, uh, to come up with some sort of a peace. And certain religions put on the table tolerance. And I was asked by the leader of the Hindu uh, community, Swami Dhyanand, the late Swami Dhyanand Saraswati, to advise on our position. And I said we should reject tolerance as not good enough and we need mutual respect. So the discussions went on because it was not easy for certain people to, to consider mutual respect. Because when I respect you, I cannot then denigrate you. I cannot say you're going to hell. I, cannot, I can say tolerance. I can say you're no good. You're illegitimate in your faith and you are going to hell, but you know what? I'll tolerate you. But the point I made is you wouldn't want your spouse at home to say, you know, I tolerate you at home. You wouldn't want to be at dinner table where someone says, I tolerate you to have dinner with me, or your coworker to say, I tolerate you here. It's a disrespectful, patronizing, demeaning, talking down. So we need mutual respect. Mutual respect with difference. Not that we don't have a difference. I mean, you have a distinct thing about you and I have about me. So when I'm eating, the example I've given is that I have respect that you are eating your pizza, but I like my gobi paratha. And it's not disrespectful that I want it cooked my way. I enjoy, I may even enjoy what you're having. I want my distinctiveness, but it's not just a question of tolerance. I actually respect your cuisine. The same can be done for a lot of things. So this grand narratives with mutual respects is, I think, the way for the future. That's, that's what we should, uh, we should be striving for. Now, the apparatus, the intellectual apparatus in India hasn't caught up with this public sentiment. The intellectual apparatus in the universities is still this anti-grand narrative. It's still making fun. It's still uh, hostile. It's still what I call Hindu phobia. And some of these forces have become breaking India forces. They are supporting separatists. They are, the first stage is separatist in the intellectual sense, identity sense, history sense, exploiting these fault lines. And then it gets charged with uh, you know, actual physical, military violent kind of a separatism on the ground. So uh, the breaking India forces are partly in India, but they also have alliances internationally. In Britain, in United States, in Canada, in Europe, they have their networks. And this is part of the very extreme left-wing agenda to dismantle grand narratives. And India is a very serious threat for them because it's such an old civilization that has not been successfully you know, uh, dealt away, uh, uh, dismantled. The rejection by the Indian uh, public of this, uh, what, what, I, what you may call anti-grand narrative nexus is a very important opportunity for Britain. The history of Britain and India presents a unique opportunity for Britain to help India in this regard. This is something India needs. It doesn't cost a whole lot of money. It'll cost some, but not a whole lot of money. And it'll have huge impact on India. And it's the one thing that will win the hearts of Indian people. So I'm going to discuss that. I'm going to discuss what exactly that is. The colonial system dismantled the first, the finance, economic, commercial strength 
and capital of India because of trade. The East India Company was trading. So we call it, uh, in our terms, we call it Vashya Varna, mm. which is the capital of business and finance. That got dismantled first. Second dismantling was the Kshatriya Varna, which is political military, because the East India Company got into rulership, governance. The East India Company was the world's oldest and largest outsourcing company. It outsourced ruling on behalf of a king, saying, we will uh, we'll give you the gun salute, and you'll sit on the elephant, and you'll come to uh, Cambridge, and you'll play polo, and all, we'll do all that, but we'll rule your country. And we will rule, we'll have the police, we'll have all of that, so we will rule. So it was sort of, uh, out, you outsource your whole rulership to us, and you sit there symbolically, and you'll still be the king. It's the world's biggest, the first successful model for outsourcing, actually. And so this is the political power, political capital being dismantled in India. And then came the intellectual capital. The political capital we call Kshatriya Varna. The intellectual capital we call Brahmin Varna. Now these are not by birth, these are not caste, these are just categories of, political, of, of social capital. So the intellectual capital dismantling was, you know, replacing Sanskrit with English, uh, you know, but, uh, getting rid of traditional teaching and uh, with new kind of stuff and not adding to, but replacing. It would be wonderful if someone said, you know, we teach your culture, you teach your language, we're not dismantling, we're not disrupting, but we're going to add something nice to it. That would be a win-win. It would be absolutely amazing. But this was, in fact, very clearly articulated in the British House of Parliament in the 1800s that the way to really defeat these guys is to deny their history, their sense of self-esteem and all of that. So it did happen. Now, this, this depletion of social capital is being reversed with the political capital being brought back through independence and economic capital being brought back in the last 15, 20 years through GDP growth and so on. And now that the next frontier is to revive and bring back the intellectual, cultural, the capital of grand narrative. So this would be a return of India's soft power. If you look at what is being taught, the Indian left has had five waves. I don't have time to go through the details, but Indian left has had five waves of Indology and the, the import of ideas from the West. Uh, first came uh, Marxism, which is a Western thing. Uh, uh, then came post-colonial studies. Then came subaltern studies. Then came postmodernism, And now it is neo-Orientalism. So these are, these, the, all this hubris, uh, an alphabet soup of imported things have de really devastated the Indian grand narrative. It's, it's Indians working as sepoys for a new kind of uh, imperialism, if you will. And, and, and here I think the British probably are not conscious that they're being utilized by some political forces in India to, and made to look bad. So this, the, when, when a whole lot of these sepoys come here looking for patronage, that they are Indians and they're bringing freedom, human rights. They're bringing human rights, okay, and so on. Okay, you gotta look at it very suspiciously. You gotta look at it that this is just a political faction that's actually gonna put your name and your money and your sponsorship, and they're gonna do their own political work. So I, I think that uh, uh, it is important that in this era, the, the British 
uh, government and serious thinkers should realign, should question their prior alignments with the intellectual people in India and realign with new people. And some of these new people are very big and popular in social media, which is a barometer of popular appeal, as opposed to old school media, which is still controlled by old institutions. The old intellectual system, which we still have running textbooks and all kinds of things, even the uh, public service exam in India uh, to become an uh, uh, administrative service or foreign service or whatever is still the, uh, the, 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 the kind of authors and the kind of uh, books and the questions asked are still of a very old camp kind of thinking. They still haven't, the new government hasn't done a good job of dismantling all that. So uh, in, in, these, in this worldview, which is prevailing in Indian thought and also reflected in the Western view of India. There was no India prior to colonization. There was no India. If there was, a, if there was any pre-colonial glamorous era, it was the Muslim rule. That was the height of, that was the golden age of India. That's how it is being taught. And so we, we are not studying, we're not studying the Indian social theories, political theories, economic theories, people like Cotillia, a thousand years before Machiavelli, saying profound things. We, we just don't have that. We just don't have so many economic theories. Uh, you can see books now coming out which compare modern economic thought with some of the classical Indian thought in economics. So it is important that we revive our narrative. When you look at Britain, Britain was beneficiary of a large part of Indian knowledge and Indian power because until, if you look at the Cambridge history of world economics, uh, it tells you that until 1750, India had about 25% of world GDP. 25% of world GDP. And it says that the West, comprising of Europe and North America combined, had less than 20%. The rest was mainly China. China so these were the three big slices. So what happened? And also, when you look at the early... European scholars of India, they called themselves romanticists, and they had a huge romance for India. So it's only later on, a hundred years after this romantic period for India, that things became negative. So you can go back to these people and you have tremendous resources. I mean, they respected India's, uh, you know, mathematics, astronomy, philosophy, linguistics, botany, medicine, all, all kinds of stuff. And the East India Company, really studied steel production in India. Uh, Dharampal has, uh, you, the late Dharampal spent a lot of time in libraries in the UK to look at reports from the East India Company measuring steel production, quality of steel, cost of steel and so on, and in, even arguing why some of the Indian steel was better and cheaper and should be sent to UK. And some of the major construction projects requiring a lot of steel in, in Britain were with Indian steel and Indian textiles, legendary. So if you look at the first two products that made the British Industrial Revolution successful, what are they? Textiles and steel. And what were some of the most important things the East India Company was engaged with in India is textiles and steel. So you see, we have to rethink history. We have to rethink history of what happened and to what extent Britain benefited not just expropriating capital out of India and not just using it as a large captive market, but also in some of the knowledge transfer. 
And this knowledge transfer in those days, we did not have patents and intellectual property, and we didn't have lawyers wanting royalty. So it didn't happen that way. When I speak to my, my American educators, one of the questions I ask is, why was Columbus looking for India? Hardly one out of 100 will kind of tell me. They don't know what, you know. So I said he was not, he was not certainly going there to teach human rights. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they, most Americans, you see, and, the, and the, the narrative of India I'm talking about is not like you've got to do some new research and come up with new things. The dots exist, but they haven't been connected. So, for example, the Arabs acknowledged and respected a whole lot of mathematics and astronomy coming out of India. In fact, many of the Arab texts start by uh, giving the name of what text in Sanskrit or Malayalam that they are translating. And then, uh, you know, 100, 200 years later, some of these texts are translated into Latin. And then we know that they go from there to northern, northern, uh, northern Europe. And so people like Leibniz and uh, Newton were not out in a vacuum. There were, for instance, the whole theory of infinite series is very well known and respected by in, uh, historians of mathematics, where it came from in India. The theory of uh, infinitesimals, and these are all pre-calculus. These are all the foundations from which calculus is made. So we need to come up with a global history of how ideas have traveled. How ideas have traveled from west to east and east to west, and we are all human. It's a network. It's sort of like a very slow version of the internet. Things didn't happen in milliseconds. They took a long time. Somebody had to go in a boat somewhere, but they did happen over a long period of time. And we have to acknowledge that. So all of this, connecting the dots and redeveloping a true history of India and India's soft power would be a very important thing that Britain can collaborate with Indian thinkers, and this would be something the Indian people would really, really appreciate as a tremendous gift coming back from Britain. And this, I think, is an important proposal I would like to leave. That Britain, <laughs> there is a proposal I do not agree with, which says that Britain should give financial reparations to India. Now, this is not an original proposal. This is every few years some politician, some slick politician comes up with this to get some applause because it's emotional. But let me tell you, and this has been around since Indira Gandhi's time. When I was in school, they used to talk about it. And we all kind of, wow, 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 you know. But we must move forward in a win-win way, in a positive way, where everybody wins and put the back past behind us. We have to acknowledge the past. We have to write the correct history like I just described. We have to honor each other, help each other rebuild and reconstruct a positive grand narrative for ourselves and then move forward into the future rather than us versus you, rather than anger, rather than kind of blame kind of a mode. So the problem with this financial reparations issue is that it sort of says, you're guilty, and I'm going to get you. It's punitive damages. It'll never happen. Let me just tell you, Britain will never give you know, even a small amount of money as a symbolic thing and, and come up with some kind of, OK, we are guilty, and we are ashamed, and all that. It's not going to happen. So the rabble-rousing, over-emotional, bombastic people in India are just looking for some instant populism. I would replace that with something far more important, far achievable, and I call it soft power reparations. 
That's a term I'm introducing for the first time today. What we should ask for is soft power reparations, not financial reparations. Soft power reparations means the narrative of India, the, what we teach in our textbooks, what Britain teaches in its textbooks, the ideas of history, these all to be set correctly. Not exaggerated, but set correctly. And this kind of uh, intellectual exercise is just honesty. It's just a sign of being honest. And it doesn't cost money. It just costs heart, just the heart in the right place. So I have a few ideas. First, I think this whole Aryan invasion theory needs to be dismantled. And this Aryan invasion theory was first. <laughs> this was the early British Orientalists never proposed such a theory. I mean, they were, they were fond of Sanskrit. From William Jones onwards, they, were, they loved Sanskrit, Sanskrit texts, but never, never they said, you know, that we are some Aryans who brought it to you and all that stuff. It was never done. This happened late, later uh, with uh, Max Miller. He's the one who kind of uh, fathered this theory. And uh, this was encouraged by Queen Victoria. But it was great news, saying, wow, this is a discovery. If we brought civilization to them in the ancient days, we are just bringing more civilization now. So, so the, the, the Germans, what they got out of this Aryan theory is a sense of nationhood. That we, wow, we, we are the inheritor, we are the ancestors of all these great Sanskrit and great texts, for we are a nation. That's why, that's why we are so great. So it gave them, it built the German nation in terms of the German grand narrative. Uh, and of course, then Hitler took it into a different turn, which is a horrible thing, because he appropriated this idea for a very nasty purpose. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's another reason to dismantle such a theory. What the British got out of it is saying, thank you, Max Miller, this is good, because while you guys get a sense of grand narrative for your nation, uh, what we get is legitimization for the empire. Because we can say, you know, this is, uh, this is like, uh, uh, this is colonialism 2.0, because once before we went there as Aryans to civilize you anyway, we, then we didn't have cricket, but we brought you Sanskrit. And now, now we can give you cricket, and we can give you English language, we can give you more. So uh, this, this business that started in the 1800s uh, needs to be dismantled. And, the right, and if Britain were, if some good, honest scholars with an open mind were to collaborate with their Indian counterparts and publish some works, and we could have a few conferences, I would love for my foundation to have a partner here and do a Swadeshi Indology conference right here and on this topic and set the record straight. You know, in World War I, 1 1.3 million Indian soldiers fought on the side of the Allies. Yeah. More than the combined number of soldiers from all other countries put together. And there is no memorial to them in Britain. The same sort of statistics also for World War II. Now, what a great soft power move it would be for the British government to say, let's work together and let's produce a real solid monument. It's not out of blame, anger, guilt, or any of that stuff, but just to honor those people. 75,000 Indian soldiers died in World War I fighting on the British side, and another 70,000 were seriously injured. This is a very high casualty. And let me also tell you this, many military historians feel that if it weren't for such a large number of brave Indians, Britain would probably have lost the war. And Britain would probably have, this means, 
turned out to ended up as a German colony. And today we would be sitting here speaking German. So this is pretty serious stuff. That, that a huge event, twice in the, in the 20th century, we, our community did. Our ancestors did this. Or most of them Hindus. We did this. And there ought to be, at least for emotional, psychological reasons, there ought to be a nice memorial somewhere. So this is, this is another kind of an example of what I'm talking about. Very concrete, soft power reparations. I believe that next year, April 19th, 2019, will be the 100th anniversary of the Jallianwala Bagh massacre. That was a huge massacre that General Dyer ordered a peaceful gathering in Amritsar, and a large number of people were brutally killed, fired. What we also need to be ashamed of is that the actual bullets were fired by Indian sepoys. Indian sepoys killed their fellow Indians in very large numbers throughout the British time. And this Jallianwala Bagh is not just a disgrace for one man, General Dyer, but also for all the Indians who sold out to do this dirty work. And we generally don't complain about these sepoys, but we should, because the modern intellectuals who are colonized, who are bringing the same kind of uh, anti-Indian grand narrative are basically sepoys 2.0. That's who they are. They are the breaking India forces. So this, this business, so what, what could we do? So something positive could be done. We should have a conference or we should have something to uh, kind of uh, memorialize what happened 100 years ago. Uh, you know, in Germany, they teach a Holocaust and they teach it with a kind of not that, you know, somebody's fault. It's like it happened. We don't take ownership of it. Something in the past happened. It won't happen again. Let's move on. In the United States, there's a lot of uh, white, black, reconciliation where uh, they teach slavery. It happened in a previous generation. It was a horrible thing to happen. And we've now made sure it won't happen again. So having set the record, let's not have this under the undercurrents of anger and hatred and all that. Let's move on. Let's just move on together. I think it's time that the Indians got out of this old negativity towards the British. It's time that the British acknowledged what has happened. It's time that we worked together. And that is what I'm calling soft power reparations. And the benefit will be we will move forward in a win-win way, positively as collaborators. That's what I would like to happen. There are certain negative things that Britain should stop doing. Because these things were part of the old Indian elite, intellectual elite, wanting these things. And those people have been thrown out. And Britain should stop. For example, this whole overdone you know, caste oppression, we got to fix their caste problem. Well, in the United States, there is this US Commission on Religious Freedom. And I had a closed door meeting with them recently. And I told them about you know, oppression in the United States. And then they never mentioned one sentence of that in any of their reports over the last 15 years. And I mentioned that some of this, uh, you know, overdone support for Christian evangelism in India is very nasty because that is not, that kind of evangelism is not a true change of the heart towards another faith, which is fine. 
but it's really a pejorative hitting. It's sort of like an, a, a kind of a militancy to denigrate and bring down the traditions of the country. And, and I showed them some evidence and they were surprised because they had never heard of this before. No one told them this before. They were being fed things through their channels which were self-serving. So I think there are certain networks, institutional alliances that need to be dismantled. And so Britain should also take with a grain of salt any reports you get from Christian evangelists in India. Want to, basically, they want to expand their numbers, expand their market share, and they want to do it with, by claiming that they're bringing human rights. So this whole human rights business is feeding what I call breaking India forces. And it's bringing Britain a bad name. And Britain should not be involved in that, be realigned with those who are trying to build a positive India for all Indians, including every kind of a community, every faith, everything. All Indians need to be part of a good, positive, grand narrative of India. And we ought to construct that rather than breaking each other apart. So that's a project we can do. You know, Britain missed the boat on the globalization of yoga, Americans did it first. Now in the 60s, the Americans discovered that this is a great thing. And then they, they, it's taken them a couple of decades. And now there's this globalization of a kind of an Americanized yoga. But Britain had 200 years to do it. Could have been more open-minded and said, you know, these guys, they got something nice also about them. And, and, and so it's not just money we can take out of them, but also they have some very nice culture. And this is very good for humanity. Maybe a 200 years, uh, if there had been 200 years of yogis all over the world, perhaps we would have been a more peaceful world. Perhaps, perhaps Britain missed the boat on uh, the yoga revolution and let the Americans do it. And now there is more happening. The cutting edge of mind sciences, cognitive science, neuroscience, is basically taking lots of Indian techniques, advanced meditation, you know, chakra techniques and, and tantra techniques and so on, uh, and really doing a neuro, neuroscientific empirical studies on it. Uh, my foundation has done, for 15 years, we've been doing research on Indian contributions to mind sciences. I'm writing a book on that, on the unacknowledged Indian contributions to mind sciences over the last 50 years in the West, looking at citing Western evidence. And in March, we're doing a conference in Delhi University on the uh, Indian mind sciences. So a lot of Westerners are actually already involved in this. A lot of people in Britain and US and various places are very much involved in a new paradigm of mind and, and how to move it forward, which is very Indian when you, when you look at it. So there are areas of collaboration. There is vegetarianism, going, uh, uh, which is becoming popular. There are social theories of aging, of uh, multi-generation families. Uh, there are so many areas of, of uh, traditional Indian knowledge which are relevant today. And Britain can actually be part of that and help build those grand narratives together with us. And this would be good for humanity. This could be probably jointly exported. So I will conclude by saying the Americans also did something else that Britain should have done. The multi-trillion dollar technology-led American economy is built, it runs on Indian brains. There is more Indians when you look at Microsoft, IBM, Google, Facebook, Apple 
and you look at the old technical giants like uh, Bell Labs or NASA, there is more Indians than any other single ethnic group, including white Americans. In fact, when you look at Indians and uh, Chinese and Japanese, you know, the Asians are a majority, most of these places. And I'm not talking about low-level coding type jobs. I'm talking about billionaires, entrepreneurs, leaders, CEOs. Now, Britain could have done that. But instead, Britain is a consumer of made-in-America things. And these made-in-America things are really made by a lot of Indians. <laughs> so in a sense, I'm being a technocrat. I'm grateful you guys are good consumers for, and you are a good market for us. So you see, uh, the Indians supplied the brains, but did not have, the Indians have a weakness. This is a tremendous problem for Indians. Indians did not know how to institutionalize. Indians are brilliant as one man here, one there, one there, one there. So the Americans figured out that, you know, we give them a home, we give them respect, we give them all the facilities they need, and we institutionalize them, and we make, get the best out of them, and not hold them below a glass ceiling, ceiling and then they'll flourish. And so creating this kind of an atmosphere, which made uh, USA the chosen, the most preferred destination for every, every bright Indian wanting to go there in the last couple of generations, was brilliant success for them. But UK could have done it. And UK had the knowledge about India and had the clout and the political capital to do it and should have done it and earned a lot of money out of it. So I will uh, conclude by just saying that there is a clash of grand narratives which has been going on since his early part of history. You cannot dismantle these grand narratives as a way of getting rid of the problem. You have to develop their cooperation with each other with mutual respect. That is the challenge that we all have to do. And there is a technology-driven narrative of the future. The one thing that won't go away is technology. You can argue left or right or whatever, but whatever you're arguing, it has to be pro-technology. And, so, and, the, and the fact that Indians have a lot now invested in this and are a big resource should not be ignored. So given these opportunities for cooperation and collaboration between Britain and India, I'm hoping we can take some uh, ideas, take some of these ideas further in a concrete way. And my foundation and I are available and very happy to take the lead with any British organization that would be interested in working with us. Thank you and namaste. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What an extraordinary occasion. And how wonderful it is for me to see the Arti lit here in the Palace of Westminster and not just see the illumination that flows from there, but also to bask and bathe in the intellectual illumination that we've heard today. What we've actually had is the grand tour d'horizon of, of global India, India in the world, India emerging, India in the 21st century. Is there any stranger relationship than this country and Mother India? We're very, very deeply connected. Once a year, we gather together to celebrate our divorce, uh, which I think is bizarre. <laughs> but we always, we call it Indian Independence Day. Uh, but we're there, we're gathering. For, but in many ways, for me, the quintessential coming together of those two cultures expressed in Bishan Singh Bedi's Indian cricket team of 1977. 
because there you had the Indian family tradition, two brothers batting at number two and number three. You had a Parsi wicketkeeper, you had a Sikh captain, but you also had the game of cricket, which was slightly brutal, the way that the British had played it. It was fast and it was aggressive. But in that test team, you had Chandra Sekhar, mm. Venkata Raghavan, Eripalai mm. Prasanna. <laughs> yes. You, you had even... And if you wanted to actually have a bit of seam, you had Carson Singavri and you had Madan Lal, and of course, maybe Sachin Tendulkar should throw it off. <laughs> but, but look, the point being that in India had taken something from this country and had shaped it and crafted it and changed it utterly and totally and for the better. And for me, it may seem odd to think of cricket as being the sort of the paradigm of the change in our relationship. But just look at one of the greatest Indian films of the last few years, that great cricket match, if you remember the... Lagan. Lagan. And that, that actually sums up... But for me, it's also something else which brings it very, very close to what we were talking about. Um, when I first went to Mumbai, where my mother went to school in Pune, um, and you talk about reverse colonialism, um, her father was working in Gujarat in the cotton mills, you know. He, he, he was a coolie working away up there, slaving away, and he's actually buried in Bangalore. Um, but, you know, he's very, very grateful for the work, I hasten, hasten to add. <laughs> but when I went in there and I saw the statue of Jamsachi Tata, and I was fascinated by this man, this man who from nothing had worked his way across the Atlantic, had gone to Pittsburgh, had gone to Pennsylvania, had gone to Youngstown, and he'd walked around the Bethlehem Steelworks with his notebook, writing down how to make steel. And the American said, who's that little Indian guy over there? Take no notice of him. He said, yeah, ah, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wrote it all down, went back and did it ten times better and for half the price. And invented something else. He went to Western capitalism in its rawest, red-hot furnace mode, but he added something to it, which was quintessentially Indian, corporate social responsibility. CSR hadn't existed before. There was a bit of philanthropy occasionally, there was a bit of guilt motivation, but there wasn't the principle of CSR. The Tatars invented it. You have to see India in the context, you cannot deny the past. And I think, sir, you are so absolutely right to actually go forward, you know, based on empiricism of the past, but also to acknowledge and accept that. And I think you mentioned Jalia Malabak. Anyone who's actually stood in that tight, constrained, narrow courtyard, anyone who's actually seen the well where the bullet holes are still there from that machine gun fired from the armoured personnel carrier under the direct command of General Dyer. Anyone who's seen that, who's has actually seen the letter on the wall there from Rabindranath Tagore, the greatest poet, certainly, of that century, I would say. People would say, you know, he's the Shakespeare um, of India. I say Shakespeare is the Tagore of England, to be perfectly honest. But to actually see that, to, to see that letter handing back his knighthood and to actually read that and then to emerge from the Jalian Malabak and turn left and walk along the road for a couple of hundred yards. And there you are in the Golden Temple. There, where the mist rises slowly from that lake, where peace is exudes from every brick and every stone, where solemnity and solidity and decency persist and pertain. The contrast between those two is so absolutely extraordinary. And then we've had... I have to say, it's almost like a version of sort of Mother India we've had before us today, all the great achievements. All I can say is someone who studied economics at the London <coughs> School of Economics, obviously, um, 
How could we do mathematics without Bose? How could we study anything without zero? The concept of zero. Who invented that? It wasn't the Arabs. Certainly wasn't my lot. It was yours. It was India that actually discovered the biggest and most significant breakthrough in mathematics. Mathematics started with that concept. Once you've got that, you can then move on. And as for yoga, well, do you know, those Victorian chaps who used to come back from India with their Kipling in their back pocket and recipes for hot curries, and that, um, they actually used to exercise using what were called Indian clubs. Mm. Now, mm. probably nobody in India calls them Indian clubs, but they all got, we used to actually throw them up and catch them. And it was a sort of a form of physical exercise that was carried on very, very well indeed. But look, ultimately, we, in this country, are facing, in my opinion, one of the most catastrophic decisions economically, socially and culturally that we've ever taken. And we can have disagreements along the table here, but I think the idea of the United Kingdom ripping itself away from the other 27 countries of the European Union is disastrous. However, for India, it's a completely different perspective. You see it through a totally different prism. There was a poster in my constituency, just outside my constituency, in fact in Southall, um, in, in, in Ealing, uh, you know, in June the 23rd, 2016, which said, vote, leave now. We want more Punjabis and less Poles. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the attitude that some people had. They saw leaving the European Union as an opportunity. I think it is going to be a tragedy for this country. Why is Tata, why are they running the steelworks in South Wales? Why are they running the Tetley Tea Company in my constituency? Because it's not out of some sentiment. Indian business is not sentimental. No one is going to do us any favours in this country. There's no bye-bye. We're not going to do, you know, oh, you gave us cricket, yeah, we'll give you a cheap deal. It ain't going to happen like that. You know, you are bottom-line people. You are people who ultimately, you are there for the business achievement, with CSR, obviously. I think that the reason why so much Indian investment is in, the, in GB, in the UK, is because we're an entrepreneur to Europe. We're there, we're at access point, you can build cars here and we can sell them over there. I think that without British membership of the European Union, things are going to be very dire for this country. However, India will be shining, because you always do, because you always manage to succeed. And I think Theresa Villiers is here, one of the best Secretaries of State for Northern Ireland we've had, and somebody I had the honour of working with. She and I, in Belfast, I hope Theresa would agree with this, in a city riven by sectarianism, riven by violence, there were one or two small pools of peace within Belfast city. One was the Hindu Mandir. Extraordinary building, absolutely, which Theresa went to, and the other one was the Krishna Consciousness, the, SKP, the, the Society of Krishna Consciousness building in, in the worst part of East Belfast. How extraordinary that they're in the most unpropitious circumstances, with the, the most barren of soil, this philosophy, this belief in Dharma, this great contribution that India has made to the world, managed to flourish. So, I'm not here to make a speech. I've got too late, actually, sorry, isn't it? <laughs> I, I, I'm here to, to say thank you to, and to, to also say it has been, I mean, you know, Rajiji, it's been an honour to sit at your feet today. Um, it is, and I think I speak for everyone here to say we are not just blessed by your presence, but illuminated by it. And I have to say, intellectually challenged by some of your iconoclasm, um, which is uh, what a, a great writer, a great philosopher, a great economist should actually be doing. But I want to thank you, you all for coming along here, to, for being proud of your culture and your community, and for remembering the most important thing about communities in this country, that you integrate, but you don't assimilate.
You never, ever forget what makes you original and it makes you unique. Yes, you're good citizens, you're good corporate citizens. You pay your taxes. Well, most of you pay your taxes, I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, you pay, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, those, <laughs> those of you who don't have a really good accountant pay your taxes. But, but, but... We don't but, have an Indian accountant. But, well, are there any other sorts of accountants? <laughs> it's a ridiculous question. If you haven't got a Patel in the accounts room, what's the point? <laughs> but look... But you've never, ever lost that which makes you special, that which makes you unique, and that which I would say, in all honesty, makes you, in my opinion, perfectly placed to be India shining in the 21st century. This country, post-Brexit, faces problems, faces troubles, faces difficulties. India, post-Brexit, I know, will continue to grow because it's what India does. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I will, I will keep it very brief because I can't possibly hope to compete with the phenomenal presentation by um, our very special guest speaker. And, of course, um, it's after hearing you wowed by Stephen Pound in his speech as well, it is, it's really an honour for me to be here. It was a really sort of fascinating um, reflection on hugely important cultural issues within India and in terms of its relationship with the United Kingdom. I am I'm very taken by the idea of soft power reparations and I, I'm shocked that there is no specific war memorial for Indian soldiers. It's something that must be put right. The, uh, it is the contribution of those soldiers in World War I is something that is absolutely phenomenal as we have just completed that set of centenaries relating to World War I. This is an important time to be reflecting on that incredible service and sacrifice. And um, yes, as you say, who knows what the result of those two huge global conflicts of the 20th century would have been were it not for um, Indian soldiers fighting on the side of the Allies. So I, I think there is, you know, you, we've all got, a, you've given us a huge amount of food for thought I, um, I, I really found what you had to say fascinating and I think, unlike Steve, there are huge opportunities for the United Kingdom after we leave the European Union in reshaping our, our place in the world. Unlike Steve, I, don't, I think this is a positive decision for us. I think um, it was, in, many, in most cases, motivated by the natural desire for self-government and independence. Mm -hmm. And I believe that we can make a success of this. And part of doing that, of course, will be strengthening our relationships with India, both our cultural and academic ties, but also, of course, our trading ties as well. And I want to really thank you for sharing with us these thoughts on so many of these crucial issues, which I found absolutely fascinating. And a big thank you to everyone else who's here for this really important event. Thank you. That was a very inspiring talk. And um, soft power reparations, that's um, an amazing and a very practical concept that I think we've all heard for the first time today. So I wanted to ask you that the idea of reparations we've heard from Shashi Tarur as well. Could you please clarify 
what your position is and how you differ or agree with what he's saying? Yes, thank you. Uh, I'll repeat the question. Uh, the question is that uh, Shashi Tharoor has also recently uh, made some speeches on this idea of uh, reparations and how does my idea compare or disagree or differ with, from his. Shashi Tharoor's proposal would not change anything about Indian history, India's sense of itself, India's recovery of its grand narrative. Mine are extremely concrete proposals. They are actionable and both countries will benefit. Thank you. British Indian community and Indians here in Britain are generally a very <coughs> successful group. So as a community, how can we uh, help promote a better Indo-UK relationship post-Brexit? So the question is the Indian community in Britain and the CEOs, some of them are well established and a successful group. And how can they help promote better Indo-UK relations? Since my forte is in the soft power area, uh, I would say you could uh, help us join our campaigns, join our activities, uh, create an affiliate of our foundation here in the UK, uh, maybe facilitate the kind of things I'm talking about, get us a British counterpart to what we want to do, which is ideologically aligned with us, and let us work on it together. So this is something very concrete and doable. I mean, we could hold this conference next year, announce it in the next three months. If you can organize your side of it, we'll organize our side of it. A very practical thing we should look forward to. And you know, CEOs have to be very pragmatic people, not some ideologue kind of people. So as CEOs, you can explain this to them as a very concrete thing we can do together. The next question we received from an online contributor, how can British Hindus have British values and still remain connected to their Indian roots? Well, I think a lot of Indian values are of value to the use to the British and are already being used by the British. Uh, the idea, the whole, the, the, you know, the, we talked about yoga, we talked about vegetarianism, we talked about mind sciences, uh, we talked about mutual respect. You know, there was an interesting uh, interfaith thing going on in Princeton where I live and I when I got the invite I pointed out to them that you know you don't have a Hindu representative you have uh, the three Abrahamic religions represented and this gentleman who is a Jewish person uh, he told me that the reason is we don't have a problem with you we have to sort out our problems with each other so that's why that's why that's why we, we, didn't, we didn't quite need you. So I gave him a little uh, seminar on this mutual respect and the idea of an open architecture. And according to this open architecture, we are not history centric. It's not like some defining moment in history which never happened again. That whatever, whatever the texts tell us is the final truth. Because then absolutizing history what I call history centrism, is, a, is the recipe for conflict that cannot be resolved. Because you cannot change that history and you don't want to compromise and I don't want to compromise. My legitimacy depends on the historicity of that one event and so I cannot compromise. So if there's a conflict built into that, it's not reconcilable. So I said there's a whole different way of faith, a whole different way of uh, you know, the relationship with divine and all that that we bring, which is not dependent on a particular singular historical event, but there's a lot more to it. So I gave, he invited me to, for a few talks, at the end of which he said, would you like to chair the interfaith dialogue among the three Abrahamic religions? 
<laughs> because, because he felt the Hindu brings new ideas, new ways of thinking to break this logjam, this irreconcilable clash of civilizations that the Abrahamic religions have. So I think the Hindus can do this kind of a thing in the UK. If you initiate uh, conversations as Hindus with an open architecture, you can bring a lot to the table, uh, even for other faiths to sort out things with each other. How do British Hindus help India to move to a position of mutual respect rather than tolerance post-Brexit? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I'll repeat. Uh, how can uh, British Hindus uh, help, Britain, uh, help the relationship between the two countries move to one of uh, mutual respect rather than a mere tolerance? I think we embody mutual respect in the very uh, fabric of our faith. Uh, because even within our faith, you can have your deity and I can have mine. And that doesn't mean that respect for my deity and legitimizing my deity requires falsifying yours. Uh, we have this concept called Ishtadevta, which means my preferred deity. But my preferred deity is a manifestation of the same one, the same divine as your preferred deity. So I, I, I don't see that. Uh, so therefore, this being built in built into our, uh, the very fabric of our, our system, uh, it's very natural for Hindus to, uh, you know, to go openly uh, to other, other societies. Now, the Hindu people in Britain can be a counterweight to various other unnamed, un, un, I'll leave unnamed, traditions that are actually very hostile, where there is a grand narrative clash where it says that to, for my, my grand narrative requires that the nation states have to be overruled with some kind of a grand scheme that's global and the text that it's based on cannot be reconciled. So it's either you or me. It's, it's kind of an exclusivist thing. We do not have exclusivity claims in Hinduism. We don't. It's an open architecture. This is why throughout the long history of Hinduism, new great folks, have, new rishis have come uh, made new discoveries in their state of consciousness and shared with people. And it's sort of like an open market. People who want will join. But there's no burning of books or, you know, kind of a heresy or claim of infidels and trying to kind of go after other people. So this sort of uh, open architecture, uh, which uh, promotes uh, new people to enter uh, and uh, kind of based on mutual respect, is a very good foundation for the West. The West could adopt. If the West said, okay, this is a Hindu architecture, we can make Christianity fit into the Hindu architecture. Actually, that would be a very interesting exercise. What would happen if Hindu, if, 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 the, if the Christianity said, uh, Jesus is the Ishtadevta, that's it, okay? Which means that he is my Devta, my deity, but uh, that the very construct of Ishtadevta means I respect your right to have a different one. So that, that uh, shift about exclusivity claim uh, would change the whole world. It would, change the, it would change the course of history, I would think. And I'm not sure that the world is going to be able to go on without having to make that shift from exclusivity to non-exclusivity. So this is where the Hindu voice of uh, openness has to stay firm. Because at some point in time, you will find that people fighting each other with mutual ex exclusivity claims will get tired or will destroy each other or some, somehow they will have to realize that they got to reform the exclusivity claims. The reformation of exclusivity claims, I think, is necessary condition for humankind to move forward. And Hinduism has that built into it. Okay, thank you.
Um, another online question. Um, what is the key cause for the resistance to change from the Western lens that prevents Western viewpoints from seeing Dharma from an Indian perspective? I think the Western lens, which by the way is not just physically present in the West, but the Westernized Indian, is the most prolific. Most of the new writers, many of the new writers in the English language are Indian and they are bringing the westernized lens. So what we are calling westernized lens is often, uh, you know, being worn by ethnic Indians. So uh, when I characterize, when I describe, when I give my response, I'm not talking about westerners, but about a certain lens, you see. And also I, I come across a growing number of westerners who are not wearing the western lens anymore who are actually wearing a more Hindu-like lens. I come across quite a lot of them. In the US, for sure, I come across them. So this westernized lens has both the, the religious exclusivity of one kind built into it, and for those who are secular, has a different kind of exclusivity of a superiority, the, the narrative, the grand narrative of the liberal left, while not relying so much on God per se, is also a kind of built on the superiority of a race or superiority of something or other. Uh, so this brings exclusivity. And so the, the looking at others from a position of superiority is a recipe for conflict. And so the dharmic lens is basically a very important power in the world, uh, which says we won't go away, uh, we won't get assimilated and digested, uh, we are not going to be hostile to you either, uh, we are here, and we're going to get stronger and stronger. And you have to appreciate that one day, and you have to dismantle your exclusivity claims, because that will be good for you also. You see? So I, I, in fact, I'll tell you, Many of my Christian friends in the United States are beginning to see the pre-Christian, pre-Christian faiths of Europe. What were the Celtics, the Druids, and a whole lot of these? They were very Vedic. They were very Veda-like. And the, the uh, Christianity is actually a Semitic religion from south of the Mediterranean. It's really not a European religion. It is, it is the, it, we talk about the invasion of somebody who came to India and invaded us and colonized us and, and it happened so long ago that we've forgotten and we've accepted them. Actually, Christianity invaded Europe. Christianity colonized Europe. A very brutal way. The, the Romans were the carriers of this. The Romans were the carriers who transmitted a Semitic, uh, you know, Middle East desert religion into uh, a very fertile uh, northern, uh, European t terrain, uh, and, and they pejoratively called them pagans, but they, were, they had women priests, uh, they had uh, open architecture, you could have your own faith, you could have your own deities, uh, they, they all believed in the divine, they had their own ethics, and they all, it was all kind of, they also need to be decolonized. There needs to be also a kind of a revival of the grand narrative of the pre-Christian white European people. They have to understand who they were, what was their own past, which got displaced very militarily by the invasion of Christianity. And that is another collaboration that the Hindus here should initiate with, with uh, the so-called pagan people. Pagan is a kind of a pejorative means country bumpkin kind of thing. So the Christian named them that, you know, you got a bunch of bumpkins because you're not Christianized yet. So uh, you got, if you go, there's a lot of movements to revive all that. 
And I tell my American friends that that's really, if you really want to go back into your past heritage, that's what you are to claim. And a lot of them are doing that now. The British have their heritage maintained well for future generations. What should India learn from the British in how to do this effectively? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the great things that Britain can teach us in, in the Indians is the importance of the grand narrative that Britain has. Britain has a, a proud narrative about, you know, the origins of democracy, the royalty, the, the whether, you know, not just cricket, but, you know, uh, English language, a lot of literature. I mean, Britain invests very heavily in, the, in keeping its grand narrative. And it's, it's paying its dividends in the form of, uh, you know, tourism, in the form of uh, people's self-esteem. And I think Brexit happened because that was being tempered with. Uh, people were not sort of, uh, the whole movement was to kind of dismantle that or dilute that or downgrade that somehow. Uh, and so people felt that this, that we need to go back to our roots. So India needs to understand that even a major country in the world with a secularism, secularist sort of a, a mindset and very uh, a kind of, uh, you know, intellectually, uh, you know, enlightened, rational, logical, you know, people, materialistic in, uh, with, with, with mentality also. All of that built in, uh, it, it doesn't keep them from pride of narrative. So we, we, we don't, we, we have actually been colonized by new waves of Indology. The new waves of Indology uh, have brought to us silly things like subaltern studies, you know, subaltern studies. I mean, it's just basically saying keep breaking down communities into smaller units and empower them until you've got nothing left. There is no unity left. Um, that's a silly thing. And then this uh, post-colonialism, which basically is this let's hate the colonizers, and, but hate them from, if you ask the post-colonialists, on whose behalf do you want to decolonize? When you decolonize, what will the we be? Who is the we that's going to decolonize? Mm -hmm. They have a hard problem, a very difficult problem saying it's the Vedic heritage that's the we we want to restore because they don't want that. So who is, who is asking, who's asking for decolonization? And what will, who will remain when the decolonization happens? If there's intellectual decolonization, what will the state be? What will we be like? If you really push them hard, they will end up saying that we will be not there at all. We'll be finished. We'll be disintegrated into 500 little things. They don't want to say that because the moment they say that, they've shown their hand and nobody will back them. But they do not have a unified concept of India. They don't have a unified. So this, this idea that we want decolonization, but decolonization, okay, they, it's one thing to be united against a common enemy. But then once you've finished off that, who are you collectively? What's holding you together? They don't have an answer to that. So the, the post-colonial people, the, these post-modern people are even worse. Post-modern people say there is no narrative. There is no grand narrative. It's all, you know, we are all sort of, uh, almost like we are drones or, or you know, robots or something. Uh, we don't have emotions. As if we don't, ha we don't believe in a sense of family and a sense of community and past and our stories and uh, rituals and all that. But that's fighting Mother Nature. It is, it is nature. It is natural for people to have a shared past and be proud of it. There's n never been a civilization which sort of did not have stories about, you know, our past and our ancestors. You don't have a family without a family history. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have, that's why you have family albums. 
I mean, that's why you have on Facebook you people putting up their stuff because they have a sense of community, whatever the community may be. So this business of no communities, no shared values, no narratives is a very devastating thing. And uh, I think uh, Britain did the right thing, not adopting postmodernism, but of course they exported it to us. So, <laughs> so uh, that's what happened. I mean, the uh, uh, whole, I mean, Marxism, they exported to us, Europeans, but they didn't, mar they didn't go to the Marxists themselves, if you notice that. Mm -hmm. They didn't go subaltern studies, you know, subalternizing all kind of, you know, groups here and there. I mean, if you were to subalternize Irish, then you wouldn't have solved the Northern Ireland problem. You would, you would create a problem with Scotland. I mean, with Wales. Mm -hmm. I mean, why, why, why haven't the Indian, I always ask the Indian subaltern is, why don't you go to your sponsors and funding agencies in the West and tell them to teach subaltern studies and do subaltern research on their own societies. Why don't you go to Ford Foundation and tell them that you want to study, you want to promote black studies and Hispanic studies and bring Native Americans to claim the Native Americans owned the entire America land and, and it was taken from them. Why don't you go to them and they get so scared, so scared to uh, the Indians because they're basically mercenaries for hire. They're just doing the dirty work on India, which they dare not go back and ask their masters to do on themselves. So we have to be very clear on this, that Britain did not adopt Marxism or subaltern studies or uh, postmodernism other than maybe the pop culture. You can go and eat uh, nice Punjabi food and you can have Bhangra music and you can have all the, so at the pop culture level, we are postmodern in the sense that we uh, share pop culture freely with each other. But besides the pop culture and beneath the pop culture, there is something called deep culture. The deep culture is where the grand narratives are. And the deep culture of countries is not dismantling, nor should it dismantle. The way forward is that they should have mutual respectful relations with each other. That's the future of the grand narrative of the deep cultures, not getting rid of them. And Britain can, Britain can teach us a lot about that. In the context of a post-Brexit world, um, with a strengthening Indian narrative, how do Indians and India prevent elements of their grand narrative from being, from being portrayed as being rightist by left members of the academia or media outlets? Well, the dharma narrative is neither leftist nor rightist. It's kind of, it's got its own way of looking at things. So um, to oppose one doesn't mean that you're in the other camp necessarily. I, I don't like to be called a right-wing Hindu or a left-wing Hindu. I mean, if you ask who was Gandhi, he's, he has a lot of uh, social policies that they would say are left-wing, but he believed in Dharma, Ram Raj, he was a Hindu, he believed in Vedas, Gita, all of that would be making him right-wing. So he would be kind of a, I like to fly on both wings and I don't need to amputate either one of them. I don't see why I should. So I think uh, uh, to be classified this way is a one-liner. This is sort of like, you know, people who don't have much depth of knowledge. They just believe in short, simple slogans. Uh, what you have to do in response is say, let's talk about substance. Tell us, uh, tell us a particular position uh, rather than branding it this way or that way. Just tell us a particular position 
and we would rather discuss positions per se. That's how I would respond. It's a pleasure to be here at the APPG for British Hindus uh, event uh, and uh, obviously very ably chaired, no doubt, by uh, uh, my colleague Bob Blackman. Um, but um, apologies, first of all, for not being able to uh, attend earlier. Mr Sharma had uh, been on my case to make sure that I did attend today. Uh, but due to uh, some other meetings and engagements, uh, I, I couldn't actually make it any sooner. So please accept my sincere apologies. Um, but I think in, in terms of um, going forward, the key issue, uh, which I know was being discussed today, is a post-Brexit scenario in terms of the relationships between both countries. And that is very, very important. And that's something that the likes of myself, and I know that uh, obviously we've got uh, Theresa Villiers here as well, and other uh, parliamentarians like uh, Brenda Sharma, like uh, uh, Seema Mlahotra, Preekil, and others of Indian descent like Keith Vaz, uh, Valerie Vaz, They've all been speaking about uh, the need for greater ties. Uh, and there are, uh, you know, uh, I know that I'll, I'll end up uh, missing out various names in terms of parliamentarians now uh, that I've started. I better, <laughs> a, few, a few others have popped in my, in my head, like Shalesh Varma and, um, and also uh, Barry Gardner and others who have been working assiduously to ensure that the ties between both nations post Brexit is something which is high up on the agenda for both governments. And obviously post-Brexit, everything is going to be up for grabs once again. In terms of those trade relationships will be redrawn uh, and it, it won't be that uh, we'll be obviously uh, interacting through the EU, it will be government to government. So those of us, um, like myself, uh, who have our an ancestry uh, obviously emanating from uh, India, because uh, my parents themselves were immigrants when they came here in the 70s. So we want those closer ties uh, and we want to have those greater links. Uh, but that will only happen if like-minded individuals like us uh, actually pursue that with vigour. Thank you uh, very much for uh, allowing me uh, the opportunity to speak, Mr. Sharma, but also um, uh, I would like to wish you well in, in future endeavours and uh, I hope that uh, the APPG for British Hindus, as and when you have future events as well, that um, you'll find a friend uh, 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 within the MP for Slough as well. But thank you very much for listening intently and thank you for having me. It will be most appropriate because he has worked hard in putting this event together. I'd uh, like to invite um, Pandit Shatish Sharma to have some concluding remarks, please. Najibji, um, enthralling, entertaining, and challenging. Thank you so much. I have the delightful position and the opportunity of thanking Najibji and giving you a vote of thanks on behalf of everybody in there. Now, our texts are transformational. As most of you know, I spend a lot of time working with our texts. Transformation means the person becomes a completely new being, and you see how they work. Rajivji is often the example I use of a transformed person, somebody who has steeped himself in our ancient lit literature and practices, and is now contributing in a manner which is uniquely Hindu. In that vein, we have taken Rajivji's roadshow to Oxford, and there is an event tomorrow at the Randolph Hotel at Oxford to do with decolonising academia. And so those of you who are aware of the current <laughs> context, 
I would just remind you that it's an old Punjabi tradition that if you're going to defeat an enemy, it's actually cooler to go and defeat him in his own backyard. So please, do take advantage. You've seen Rajivji's extraordinary contribution in terms of the political space. Tomorrow you'll have an opportunity to see his contribution in terms of the academic work that is needing to be done. Finally, if I may, Tripti thank you so much for hosting um, the event from the I just wanted to uh, come back very quickly uh, and thank Tripti in particular uh, for organising today and making, making it happen. Obviously, Satish, for all the work that he's done to bring you over here, Rupti. And, and I think thank you very much for giving us the benefit of your uh, sage advice, I think, in, and challenging us to not accept the status quo. Your challenge on commemorating the Indian soldiers who gave their lives in service of Britain, both in the Great War and the Second World War. Uh, and the reality is I'm, I and my staff have worked very closely to form an education programme across the UK to educate people on the role of Indian soldiers in uh, defending Britain in, in both world wars. Thank you very much. Namaste. Thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure. Wonderful. Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Do write to us your feedback, suggestions, and any questions you have on infinityfoundationpodcast at gmail.com. This is your host Karishma saying bye-bye for today.